begin our series through this letter of Paul to Titus. This is a pastoral episode. Uh, Titus is a pastor laboring in Crete, and Paul seeks to write to him this letter to put everything in order in the church. I'd like to read uh, the chapter, and then we shall consider verse 1 in the introduction. Titus 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what, I re what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for any overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, they must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and fit for any good work. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we pray that you may visit us and attend to our deepest need. Pray that you may feed us spiritually through the preaching and the hearing of your word this afternoon. We pray for the Holy Spirit to illumine us, to enlighten the eyes of our hearts, that we may receive your truth with meekness. Grant, Lord, that 
this truth may bear fruit in our hearts. We pray that you may help me as a tool in your hands, Lord, as a feeble man, as man with feet of clay, as a creature of dust. Indeed, I am nothing but a breath, a nose full of breath. We pray that you may use, Lord, the proclamation of your word to be of ministry to your people. And we pray that your people indeed may be strengthened by these truths. We pray that they may be nourished, edified, that these truths may, uh, may find a place in their heart and that your word may bear fruit in their hearts. Forgive us for all our sins and cleanse us from every unrighteousness. Lead us, Lord, in your paths of righteousness for your name's sake. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the introduction of this letter of Paul to Titus. And here Paul is writing to Titus. Titus is a pastor in Crete. And the purpose for his writing, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is for Titus to set things in order in the church. And this includes doctrine. This includes contending for the faith. This include making a defense for the gospel. This includes the structure and the government of the church. Look at verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in or into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, the first thing i like us to look at from the first verse is the authorship of this book. This letter begins, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. It's very clear from the word go who the author of this letter is. Often, in our day and age, when you receive a letter, you have the author of the letter written, writing his name at the bottom. You have the letter at the top addressing who you are. But in this case, you have the author on the top, and he calls himself Paul. This is the first word of this book. The first word of the book of Titus is the name Paul. And, and so this is obviously different from what we are accustomed to. Paul is a gentle name because we know prior to his conversion, he was called Saul. And why was the name changed? The name was changed because he was called by God to be an apostle to the Gentile. Uh, we find that in Acts chapter 13. And so you may wonder, why does Paul need to identify himself as the author of this letter. It's not certainly because of who he is. It has nothing to do with his glory, his respect, or anything that is attached to him. His writing is an instrument conveyed by God to write scripture. 
And so why does he put his name forward? He, put his, he puts in his name forward because there are false teachers. And with false teachers, there is forgery, there is duplicity, there is all kinds of deception. False teachers may write letters, they may claim to be apostles to deceive the church. And that is why he must identify himself as by his name. We have another instance in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul says, I, Paul, write this letter in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write. So Paul writes to confirm with his own hands. Paul is saying, this is coming from me. That is why it should be clear that this is coming from God because he's an apostle of God. We know uh, from the Acts of the Apostles, the apostles spoke, they were the mouthpiece of God. They spoke the very word of God. And so Paul has to identify himself, to distinguish himself from false teachers, as well as to speak authoritatively. These people, as they're receiving this letter, must know that this is the inspired word of God. It's coming from the Lord himself. There is an apostolic authority in this inspiration. And so Paul is tying himself to the gospel. He wants to be identified with a savior and he makes a bold proclamation here. He says, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. You see, for a Christian, for you to be known as a God-fearing man or a woman, you must be willing to be identified with your Savior. He says, and I'm, a, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of God. Because we do not want our own glory. We do not want to outshine our Savior. We want to be found in connection with our Savior. Think of the saints of old. Think about their names, for instance. Think for a moment a person like Abel. When you think of Abel, you think of his association with God, isn't it? His connection with God. You think of Enoch. He did not die. He was taken up to heaven. You think about his reputation, his connection with God. Paul says, I'm a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Think of John Calvin. When you think of John Calvin, you think about the institute. You think about the body of truth, the passion for the glory of God. You see, the, the name, your name, should be so tied to God that when people think about you, when people think about your name, they think about God and his word. There should be commitment there should be loyalty and devotion to God so that the people of the world, when they think of your name, they may even want to, mention, to, to name their children after you because they associate your name with godliness. Paul, a servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. The believer is married with Christ. 
is a servant of God. And so we take the name of God upon us. We identify ourselves with him because we want to be pointers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice his position there. He calls himself a servant of God. This is a general term. The apostle of God is a specific name, is a specific term. But when you talk about a servant, it is a general term. Paul does not say, I'm the great apostle. I'm endowed with power and great authority. Rather than all the accolades of royalty, he gives himself this lowly label of a servant. You see, the Greeks love knowledge. The Romans love glory. For Paul to call himself this, a servant of God, this is antithetical to the culture of the day. This is going against what uh, people believe. You see, the, the Romans loved glory. And the idea of one calling himself a servant in the Roman culture, it was repugnant. It was, it was a term that was looked at with derision. So to say, I'm a servant of God, It was a time of lowliness to them. It was a time of derision to them. And you see, everything that is attached to the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that is attached to God, finds its glory in lowliness, in humility, in servanthood. God humbles the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Jesus Christ carries himself this label. He says, the son of man did not come to be served, but he came to he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, everything that is associated with godliness find its glory in lowliness. Think of angels. Think of, think of the cherubim and the seraphim. In Isaiah chapter six, they are so close to the they, they are so close to the throne of God, and with two with with with, uh, with two wings they flew, with two two wings they uh, they cover their face, with two wings they cover their feet, and the Bible says that angels are ministering spirits, angels which are so glorious. There's an example of an angel in, in scripture who killed 184,000 people. They are so mighty, yet angels, the Bible says they are, they, are, they are servants. They are servants of God. They are so glorious. They are, they are so majestic. They have so much honor and beauty. But they are simply described as the servants of the Lord. Should it be on the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the Lord of glory. The Bible says that he took the form of a servant. It tells his disciples that the servant is not greater than his master. 
and he tells them to follow me as he washes the feet of the disciples. You see, Paul recognizes here that his apostleship as well comes from the Lord, an apostle of Jesus Christ. His apostleship is to be employed for God, for the glory of God. You see, ministry is about carrying out responsibilities for the glory of God. Gospel ministry is given to serving the Lord, serving his people. And when a Christian is visibly set apart for the service of the Lord, it's called to total commitment and loyalty to one master. You remember in the Old Testament, when a slave was committing to his master, he would bow his ear. And that, and, that, and that was a mark of ownership, a mark of service and commitment to his master. That he was willing to serve the master the rest of his life. He was willing to die for his master. And so we therefore serve the Lord. We serve the Lord wholeheartedly. And the fruit of our service is for the glory of God for the good of others, for the advancement of his kingdom. The service can be difficult, can be challenging, but it's always profitable because it is done to the glory of God. And so diligence ought to be matched with faithfulness. We are to seek to please God rather than men. We are to do everything for the service of God. Paul calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. We've gone through this. The apostles were the mouthpiece of God. And here he is referring to the specific arena of his service. He's a servant, he's an apostle. Apostles occupy the highest office in the New Testament, the highest office ordained. in the church is that of an apostle. And this office, as we saw, it is, it comes from a direct commission from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is not Paul calling himself to become an apostle. God commissioned him. He was called by Christ. Christ called him out to be an apostle. He does not take upon himself this position. And so an apostle is a servant. The highest office, notice here, the highest office is joined up with the lowliest labor. He says, on the one hand, I'm the lowliest. On the other hand, I'm an apostle. That these two go together. That the highest position in the church is one of a servant. You see, there are those who look for positions because of prestige, because of privileges that come with it. They may look for power and authority. But you see, in the Bible, everything is upside down. The way up is the way down, isn't it? Service is a call to self-denial. It is, can be painful, but it must be faithful. We should not crave authority or power or fame or popularity like people do. If you're seeking to serve God, 
you should seek to ask him for the gifts and the grace to give you to perform his service for his glory and for the good of us others it should not be for self gratification or for self glory but for the good of others god gave you gifts to be used for others for serving others and so more importantly those gifts were given to serve the lord jesus christ and that's what we are called to do the highest place in the kingdom of god is reserved for those who are saints notice his purpose here because of what an apostle of jesus christ because of what because of the sake because of the faith of god's elect and their knowledge of the truth which are caused with godliness so he begins to give us the purpose here is bringing the elect of god those who are faithful and the purpose is for them to grow in faith is bringing the gospel to the elect of god you see when you hear here about the doctrine of election you're talking about god choosing a people for himself we're referring to something that the lord does god is the one according to his purposes according to his sovereign will he chooses those he is going to save the bible says many are called the, the the gospel goes forth to many people many people have heard the gospel but what does christ says few are chosen it is the sovereign decree of god that he elects some for salvation some for faith in the lord jesus christ and from time past god decreed in eternity past and this decree is irreversible it cannot be changed all those who will be gathered all those who will be redeemed in his assembly he chose them before the foundation of the world and so he sent his son at the appointed time to die on the cross for his elect you see god is the one who is making the difference here it is god's prerogative God could have chosen not to choose. God could have chosen not to send his son. It is his sovereign decree. And you see if God is sovereign, he does whatever he pleases. We should all fall down in humility. Because he has his prerogative. He can do whatever it he pleases. He is the one who has chosen to love us first even before we loved him. it should give us profound gratitude and humility in our hearts it should intensify your calling and election sure but not only the elect here but also the faith of the elect he says for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth you see god not only elects those for salvation but he also gives them the faith the gift of faith in the gospel he gives them the ability to hear the word of god to believe it to respond to it and to lay hold of the gospel god gives saving faith as a gift to his people it's the mark of election and so those who have genuine saving faith are those whom god has chosen 
Saving faith is a mark that God has chosen you for salvation. All, Christ says, all that the Father has given me, they will come to me. So God chooses. Christ is the one who executes the work of salvation. And Christ calls them. And they hear the voice of the chief shepherd. And they follow him. And so this all comes through the ministry of the word. It comes through the preaching of the word of God. Saving faith comes through the ministry of the word. This is how God has chosen. So the principal parts of the ministry of the gospel is preaching. Preaching is the principal part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why preaching should be of most priority in the life of the preacher more than anything else. You see, when Paul calls himself here a servant, an apostle of God, of the Lord Jesus Christ, is deflecting our gaze from him to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, all glory and honor should only go to one person, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are his sheep. He is our great shepherd. And he feeds us. He feeds us with his truth. He feeds us with his word. And this is the prophetic word that he has given to us through the ministry of the apostles. And then notice that he says, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. You see, the grand undertaking of the redemption of God has one purpose, the glory of God. And we recognize that because God alone is perfect. God is the definition of perfection. And so when he seeks to save men and women, his great purpose is for his glory. And his glory is perfect. And that means for us to be conformed into his image and likeness, we are becoming like him. He's bringing his people forward to perfection. Paul is reaching to the eternal decree of God here, and he says that God predestined some people for salvation. And then he looks to the future, and he says, this election will culminate to salvation, and this will culminate into conformity, into the image and likeness of God. He says there, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. That the purpose of this election and salvation is to make us to be Christ-like, to be more godly. This whole work of changing people into the likeness of Jesus Christ begins here on earth when you become a Christian, and it ends in heaven when we shall be perfect. God will co complete that work on the last day when he shall appear. When a believer goes to be with the Lord, the believer is joyous and happy. Why? Because his soul has gone to be with the Lord, and his soul is perfect. His soul has been saved, has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, you see, 
something important I'd like you to see in this first verse is that truth must be known. It says here, for the sake of the faith of the God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. That knowledge of the truth, knowledge must be known. This faith of the elect and this knowledge of the truth, they're speaking about the same thing. There must be an acquaintance with the truth if you're a believer. There must be an understanding, an embrace of this truth of grace. You see, the faith of God's elect does not begin with blindness. The faith of God's elect begins with sight. At the time of your conversion, the light is turned on. You're able to see with faith and what and the blindness and the ignorance that was there is dispelled and you discover truth think of Pilate he looks at Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is the face of truth itself and he confronts Jesus and he says what is truth it was a mockery Pilate was deriding the one who personified truth. And was telling him, what is truth? As if truth is nothing to him. You see, we need to know that the gospel begins with truth. Why? Because God himself is the truth. God says, I am the way. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. God is the author of the truth. He's the one who provides the truth. The, the third person of the Trinity is described as the spirit of truth. John 16 verse 13 says, When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. See, truth is foundational to everything else in the Christian faith. And sadly today, truth is not tolerable in some circles, but the Bible places primacy on truth. A Christian has a settled confidence in the truth. The Holy Spirit never works against the truth, but it works with the truth. He is the spirit of truth. When he comes, he will teach you into all the truth. And so the ministry of the Holy Spirit accompanies the truth. And so you can bring everything else against the truth, but at the end of the day, the truth will stand. The truth will never change. Everything that is false will be toppled. It will not stand. And the responsibility of the minister of the gospel is to rightly handle the word of truth. To set forth the truth in its fullness, in its all, in its demand, in its requirement, in all, in, in all its implication, all the details, to hold back nothing. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11 says, Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You see, what a terrible thing to live in this world without the truth. It is living in delusion. It is li like living in a, in a swamp. Or you have the truth impressed upon your heart, handed to you on a silver platter, and then you doubt it. You don't believe it. 
you decide to live a lie. You see, you cannot seek salvation without seeking the truth. It's like seeking, it's like a blind man looking for water in a desert without anyone to guide them. You must seek the truth, you must fight for the truth, you must know the truth. And for people who resist the truth, for people who rebel and fight against it, it's all foolishness. You cannot play games with the truth. Notice also that the truth here is the ground for your faith. It's the basis for your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot come to the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in him apart from the truth. He says, their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Our faith is based on a clear knowledge of truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. How will they hear if no one is sent? You see, this is not uncertain opinion. This is not something that we are not sure about. This is not a blind leap into the dark. Your faith is based on truth. It is based on certain knowledge of the truth. If truth was not the basis of our knowledge, then everything that we have done today will be worthless. Every aspect of our worship will be worthless because truth has to be the basis of our faith. Our singing, our preaching, everything else will be useless. Truth must be the basis of our faith. That means that we are resting on it we are embracing on the truth and how sad that for some people their faith is very small it's very small because they have very no small knowledge of the truth there are people who boast about great faith that they can do mighty works but they are ignorant of the word of God see it's a contradiction Faith comes by hearing the word of God. You have great faith when you know more truth about the word of God. So for you to purport that I have great faith because I was anointed, because I can perform miracles, but you're ignorant of the word of God, it's, it's foolishness. It's ignorance. So we need, to, we need the truth to come down from heaven in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John 6, 68, the disciples asked Jesus, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. Because there is no other place for a Christian to go than to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the truth. And we cannot trade that for anything else. We cannot embrace anything else apart from the truth of God. If the basis of our truth of our faith is truth, we cannot tolerate anything else. People may say what they, it suits them. People may say things that are their preferences. But we know that the truth is the bedrock of our faith. 
And you see here, the call is to a spiritual discernment. What can you say to be truly biblical? You may you, you may come here and you are affected by your culture, your background, your tribe. But if you're a Christian, you should be able to distinguish that which is biblical and that which is of the culture. That's not to say that we can overthrow cultural norms. But there are things that are, are fine with culture. But there are things that are wrong with it. And we have no biblical obligations to follow them. And so the elect in this passage, they are brought to saving faith through the truth. They are kept by that truth. The content of what we consume is a substance of divine truth. And that truth nourishes us. That truth fortifies us, strengthens us. And then lastly, notice there that this truth promotes godliness. This truth promotes godliness. It says that this truth accords with godliness. It agrees with godliness. So these truths are not notions in our brains. This is not mere intellectual knowledge. This is the truth that enlightens our mind and it, produ- it proceeds to engage our whole man. You see, the, the aim of the knowledge of truth is godliness. The reason why we worship the Lord the whole day is for us to hear the truth because that truth transforms us. It makes us more godly. This truth is not only information. It's not about our, our duties as a Christian. But it's also, it goes beyond that. It actually conforms us, molds us into the image and likeness of Christ. It cleanses us. It changes us. And that truth must be evident in our life. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18... The Bible says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so, this is a picture of a glass, and that as we look at ourselves in this glass, this image of the Lord Jesus Christ, as, as we look at this truth, as we look at to Christ, as we look, look at Christ, we are seeing the glory of God in that, in that glass. And that glory transforms us, changes us. And so you're changed into the image and likeness of God through the operation of the Holy Spirit. And so you, we are to study to show ourselves approved of God. The truth of Jesus Christ is what sets us free. Jesus Christ equips us to fight sin in our life. And so this truth should not simply be in our mind. We are not here to fill our minds. We are not here to know more than the person sitting next to you. 
we are here to be transformed, to be more godly, to know God, to know Christ. Because to have had knowledge without the heart is dead. Knowledge, truth should be in your head and it should be in your heart. The truth should be in the heart of God's people. And that should produce the fear of God. That should produce humility. That should give you a mixed spirit. That should make you more obedient to God. More thankful to God. It should fuel your prayer life. It should give you the zeal for the love for the lost. Truth should enable you to worship God aright as you come every Sunday to worship Him. It should cause you to love the law of God, to love the scriptures. It should cause you to love other people, to love your enemies, to love other brethren. It should cause you to deny yourself, to sacrifice for the rest, for the sake of others. And this truth, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, produces a godly life. And so, whenever there is a person who professes to know the knowledge of the truth, to know a lot of scripture, but it does not correspond with his life, we have an hypocrite. Because truth should humble you. Truth should make you more godly. It's a mark of godliness. And that's why many great theologians were humble men. You, you read uh, the beginning of the Institutes by, uh, by John Calvin. And he says that the, the, the purpose of his writing is to make Christians have a godly life. So the Institutes, he doesn't write for people to know, to know a lot of theology and such things. That's important, but it should permeate our life. Godliness should be exemplified in our life. Christmas must be magnified in our midst. We should be able to kill sin every day because the more you know the truth, the more you can be kept from the lies of the evil one. The more you know the truth, the more sin in your life is exposed. And so, Christian, you cannot prioritize anything else than godly life. And so the purpose of this first part here is for them to see that truth must be known. That this truth must transform their life and make them more godly. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this evening. Thank you for the exhortation that truth must transform us. We pray that you may sanctify us by your truth. Your word is true. Establish us, Lord, in your, by your grace and help that by the operation of the Holy Spirit, the preaching of, of God's word may change us, may make us more godly, may humble us, may cause us to love you more and more, may cause us to love your law and love your people. We pray that you may help us as we continue to worship you. For these things we pray in Jesus' name.